Well, good morning again, church. And that is one of my favorite worship songs right now. That last song we sang, it just speaks God's faithfulness in the church and through time and how he is always present. He is always uh, sovereign over the church. And so, you know, let's remember that even now in this day and age as we serve him, as we worship him. Let's be, let's be people of faith and hope as we serve our good sovereign God. Amen. Well, we're still in our series called Gospel People. We are exploring what it is that God has actually called us to be as his people. It's less focused on our beliefs and behaviors and more on our identity, our character. We are a people of greater dreams who believe in God's power. We are a people of abundant life who believe in a fullness of life, uh, certainly for the future, but for even now in this day and age. We are a people of passion who don't settle for just a life of obedience, but for a life of love and fullness with Jesus. And today we're going to talk about how gospel people are a people united. And as we jump into this, I want to tell you a couple quick stories. Um, I've served in a number of churches over the years in different positions, but in each church, um, I've had a, a leading role with respect to the worship ministry in one capacity or another. And at one particular church, I had a number of young people, uh, high school students and college age students, involved in the worship ministry as musicians and vocalists. And like most student ministries, the entire group would go to a couple conferences through the year. And one year after the group returned, the, the very next worship team rehearsal we had for our team, I asked one of these young men um, how the week went. And he went on and on about how great the worship band was and the preacher and, you know, the production of the conference with all the lights and the smoke and the big LED screens. And, you know, it was a high production, almost concert quality worship experience. And, th and that's great. But, and he said, and then he looked at me and he said, why can't our worship be that way? And you know, it really surprised me. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, and again, he goes on and on about how the worship there, he says, it was just really, really, really good. It's just so well put together and high energy and professional and amazing. And our worship is kind of, well, you know, <laughs> and I tried to help this young man realize and remember that at these conferences, they pull out all the stops at the worship band he's praising has been traveling around all summer doing the same 12 songs and that the preacher at the conference has been traveling around all summer doing the same, you know, six or eight sermons. So yeah, they really have their act together. I tried to help them realize and remember that uh, we have to do this every single Sunday, usually with a completely different list of songs and sometimes even a completely different group of musicians from week to week. And uh, so, you know, and then here's the next thing he said to me. I kid you not. He said, well, I think God might be calling me to find a different church. Yeah, that was his response. And so here's another story. Um, in another church, I developed a relationship with a man named Dave. And he came to me one day asking if I had any ideas for resources to help him go deeper in his faith. You see, Dave, he was, even though he's twice my age, um, we just had a really good relationship. He was fairly recent to the faith. And in that moment, I felt like the Lord was laying on my heart to ask him if he would like to enter into kind of a mentoring or discipling relationship, at least for a season. And he eagerly agreed. Well, over the following months, we developed a really great relationship, even to the point where I could speak, you know, pretty frankly into his life. And even a few times where I had to call him out on a particular, you know, attitude or behavior. 
Well, there was one point where, where Dave got sick. He had the flu or something that put him out of commission for a couple weeks. He kept him from coming to worship for, I think, I think two or three Sundays. And when he got all better and we started meeting again, there was a point where I was just praising him and trying to encourage him for all the progress he had made. He'd been, you know, real consistent in reading his Bible and he had joined a, a men's small group he was part of. He was serving in the church, attending worship regularly, giving to the offering regularly. And he responded by saying, yeah, but the last couple of weeks I really haven't. And I said, oh, that's okay. Everybody knows you were sick. You know, we can give you a little bit of grace on that one. And I don't remember exactly how, but somehow he indicated that he hadn't given uh, to the offering for the previous three weeks. And I said, oh, that's okay. You can just put it all in, you know, this week. And it was really interesting how in that moment he looked at me like I was suggesting something crazy. And he said, you mean make up the offering I missed? And I said, well, I mean, sure. If it's your practice to give every week as part of the worship, then you can just, you know, put it all in this week. And then here's what he said. He said, but why would I have to give if I wasn't there and I didn't get anything out of it that day? And so it's like he was, like you pay for church weekly or something. I don't, I don't know. But both of these stories, they highlight something prevalent and problematic in the church today. Um, that many see the church as primarily a place to get their needs met and to satisfy their preferences. And we see it show up in a lot of ways in the church, whether it be related to worship styles and giving, how our resources are delegated to our particular pet programs or projects, um, our preferred seats in the sanctuary, our pews in the worship center, or even to the kind of personal access we have to pastors and, and staff. And, you know, I think a lot of this comes from really what is a rugged or aggressive individualism that's celebrated in our culture. It comes from this unapologetic look out for myself first mentality that really dominates the human perspective. But how did we get to this place in the church where church and our faith is a transactional exchange? I give my money, so you better listen to me. Or, you know, I've been here for a long time, pastor, so what I want better be important to you. You know, this is not what God intends for the church. And, you know, most of us, we'd readily say, oh, that's not how I think about it. But then we often behave that way anyway. We hold back our giving. We, uh, we don't serve if we're unhappy. We complain about leadership instead of supporting and praying for them and communicating with them. And, you know, honestly, the roots of this kind of thinking about the church has been a long time in development in America for well over 80 years, but even further back to the original sin of Adam and Eve. You know, one can trace the development of this individualism from right after World War II right through today. And I'm not going to go into all the detail of the sociological dynamics involved over time, but we can see it in the development of the American dream, the rise of consumerism over time, the effect of Hollywood on our culture especially, especially with respect to our heroes. You know, our heroes are usually the rebels, the, the cowboys who um, ride into town and take on the town single-handedly. They're usually womanizers with no lasting personal connections. Or our heroines, our women who are glamorous and sexually powerful, who move to the city to conquer the city, to take on the world and to make a name for themselves. You know, 
our films and our, our stories often give this vision for life, this vision of complete autonomy and self-definition and maximum pleasure and minimal commitment. And so we see the results in our culture, our entertainment, even our collective values that independence is superior to commitment or that relationships exist primarily to meet our personal needs. But this isn't the vision or the dream that God gives us for life or community. The nature of the kingdom of abundant life we see in scripture isn't one of disconnected individuals who use each other and use the church and even try to use God to satisfy our personal desires and needs. But apart from the wisdom of scripture, the guidance of the Holy Spirit and our surrender to him, our tendency is to simply drift through life without ever connecting and committing to other people. We move from church to church, friendship to friendship, even marriage to marriage. And we tend to believe that life is better without authority or commitment or covenant or accountability. And many view and practice the life of faith as something private. Did you know that yet your faith is personal, but it's not private? It was never meant to be private. This is not the life, the abundant life that God offers or expects gospel people to pursue. It's, it's very different. And you know, this perspective on humanity, it really, like I said before, it, was, it's, it really isn't new. It came along way before the American dream and consumerism and Hollywood, and it actually began with the original sin of Adam and Eve. You know, before the fall, humanity was the way it was supposed to be. It was the way it was meant to be, purposed by God. Humanity was in perfect communion with God and with each other and with the rest of creation. There was a shalom or a peace, uh, an ordering of relationships and a harmony. But then Satan rebelled against God and then tempted Adam and Eve with a, with a different perspective. He said, isn't life better with you calling the shots? Does God really have your best in mind? Does he really love you? Wouldn't it be better if you could make your own decisions? Wouldn't it be a whole lot better if you had independence and self-direction, maximum pleasure and minimal commitment? You know, and so they fell. And the fall broke humanity's communion with God. It broke humanity's union with each other and harmony with creation. Instead of life, there is now death. You know, that separation, that brokenness that continues to today and it's exactly what God sets right and repairs in Jesus' sacrifice and victory. And in the life and the community of the church, the kingdom of abundant life today, death is defeated, brokenness is made whole, separation is now united, but we still feel it, that isolation, that, that separation and our natural tendency to drift towards it. Our fallen nature, our sin nature, our flesh, it calls us away from God. And this is compounded by the influence of our culture. So Jesus came to fix that separation and that isolation, but this side of heaven, we still feel it and we drift towards it. We've been saved from it, but in these bodies, we still face the daily grind and oppression and temptation of sin. And until we die and pass on to heaven, we'll keep facing that. You know, you have to remember uh, what we can call the three capital P's of our salvation. You know, when you come to Jesus, you are immediately delivered from the penalty of sin. 
And as you walk through Jesus, walk through this life with Jesus, his spirit works in you to deliver you from the power of sin. And one day when Jesus calls you home, you will finally be delivered even from the presence of sin, the penalty, the power, and the presence. But until that day, sin is still present and a powerful force in our lives. So we will naturally battle with sin our entire lives, including our tendency to go it alone, to separate ourselves from God and from each other. But at the same time, God created us and the Holy Spirit drives us and convicts us. You know, so we also feel we know that something just isn't right about it. We've learned that even though our individualism, our autonomy, self-definition, lack of commitments can certainly feel good, it comes with a terrible price, separation from God and one another. You know, even in our current state of affairs with social distancing and staying at home, less contact with other people, no large crowds, no physical contact, um, we extroverts, we're struggling right now. So please keep us in prayer. Um, but, you know, it's interesting how many memes and jokes have been circulating on social media and the internet about the apparent joy of being disconnected and separated from the world and from other people. You know, I think that's actually really unfortunate how people seem to be looking forward to being isolated from other people. I, and, you know, I think that can only last so long. Soon people are going to miss each other and because because that's the way God wired us, the way he created us. We all have the same greater desire for connection and community. Even if it makes us nervous or we're introverted, it's still there. You know, these longings, these yearnings we have are created into each one of us. You know, one yearning is to have reconciliation with God himself. You know, not some quasi-spirituality that we pick up on Sunday mornings and sit down when we go to lunch. Um, but a new union with Jesus in a covenant, abundant life relationship. You know, in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You know, so really what Jesus is doing here is affirming the strong supernatural inclination that God has built into every person to be connected and belong. And the strongest connection and belonging we can have is in relationship with Jesus. God wants us to turn away from the things that are ruining our souls and distracting us from him and turn to a life of covenant with him. And the other yearning God created into us is reconciliation with one another. The fall, it broke humanity's union with one another. You know, the first thing Adam said after they ate the fruit was to God when he said, I was afraid of you. You know, this, this shows us the brokenness of that relationship. And the second thing Adam said after they ate the fruit was, the woman made me do it. You know, he blamed her. And at that point, their relationship was damaged and they were cast out of the garden and had to go do life on their own. They had belonging in the garden together and with God, but now nowhere to belong. And then on top of that, their own relationship was damaged. And the unfortunate thing is we, we continue to do this to ourselves. We starve these yearnings for connection and belonging that God has given us by not letting ourselves be known, by not committing ourselves to community and worship and service and friendship. We isolate ourselves. 
We'd rather spend the weekend binging Netflix than binging relips. We'd rather pull into our garages and close the door behind us instead of relating to our neighbors. We'd rather sleep in a little more on Sunday mornings instead of finding a place to serve or a group to join. But in Christ, our God-given yearnings are satisfied if we receive and we take part of what he has to offer. He calls us out of our attempts to find redemption for ourselves and reconciliation with him by our own good works or our own efforts. He calls us out of that. He calls us out of our attempts to do life on our own and to seek meaning on our own. And he gives us a place to belong to something greater than ourselves. In fact, it's, it really is a whole new reality, a whole new spiritual life that God offers in his son Jesus and in the church today. Paul explains it well in the passage that we're going to look at today. I bet you're probably wondering, when are we going to get to some Bible, Pastor? Well, here we go. We're going to take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's take a look at that together now. And as we read it, we're going to start in verse 12. And as we read it, um, you know, to help us understand what Paul is talking about here, just remember that he's speaking to Gentiles who, until Jesus, were not included in God's kingdom and promises. But now, through Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles are united as one people, and one people called the church. And so addressing that, Paul says this. He says, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, the two groups being the Jews and Gentiles, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with all its commands and regulations. You know, these are the things that had historically separated Jews and Gentiles. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, therefore, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So in this passage, Paul is speaking to the unity of the church he specifically is talking about how the Jews and Gentiles who had been separated for so long, religiously, geographically, politically, and culturally, they're now united in Jesus in this new thing called the church. And through this section, Paul uses four different metaphors to describe the nature of the church with respect to its unity. The first metaphor is that of a body. A, body, a physical body. You know, it's a quick reference. It's almost a passing reference in verse 16 where he says, his purpose, Jesus' purpose was in one body to reconcile them both through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The image here is that of a physical body in poor health and God has healed it. 
And maybe it's even stronger than that. He's taken all these different parts that were sick and even dead, and he's revived them. He's resurrected them, made them whole, and put to death the things that were causing the sickness and death in the first place. Now the body, now the body can be united and whole, and all the different parts of the body can exist together and work together and even thrive together. You know, this metaphor of the body is, is a familiar one that Paul's used before. You might recall passages like uh, Ephesians 4, verse uh, 3 and 16, just a couple chapters over, where he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. In verse 16, he says, from, the ho- from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Or Romans 12, four and five, where he says, just as each of you has one body with many members, many parts, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. And probably the most familiar uh, use of this metaphor is in 1 Corinthians 12. And there's a lot of verses there. We're not going to read the whole passage, but um, he says things like, the body is not made up of one part, but many. And in verse 18, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Verse 21 is where he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Verse 25 and 26, he says, there should be no division in the body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. And then in verse, in verse 27, he says, now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you has a part in it. So in all of this, the, the, the whole drive of teaching in using this metaphor of a body is how much we need each other. For me to be what God wants me to be, I need you. For you to be what God wants you to be, you need each other. Our purpose and our identity is accomplished through unity in the church. You cannot be the disciple God calls each of us to be without the rest of the body of Christ. The Bible knows nothing of solitary faith in Jesus. You know, and this is, this is a message that is fundamentally opposed to the individualistic value of our culture today and the isolationist tendencies of our sin nature. The second metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 is that of citizenship. In verse 19, he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. You know, perhaps many of us don't grasp the power uh, or the concept of citizenship in the Roman Empire. You know, it it was a big deal and one that came with a great degree of rights legally and culturally. Maybe someone, maybe you're someone who uh, immigrated to the United States and, and you acquired citizenship. And so maybe you're in touch with what a powerful concept this is that day that you became a citizen. It just had so much meaning for you. Well, it was a big deal in that time as well. You know, in Acts 16, there's uh, this account of Paul and Silas in Philippi, you know, and their, their message and miraculous work, they, it caused an uproar in the town and the mob seized them and beat them and locked them up in jail. You know, this is a scene where they're singing the worship songs at night and there was an earthquake that shook their chains free and swung open the doors. And after that, the jailer and his family came to faith in Jesus. Well, hopefully you remember that story. 
But then the authorities, um, when they realized that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were worried because to beat and imprison a Roman citizen without a trial was a serious offense. It was a serious breach of Roman law. And so these officials came to apologize to them and to escort them out of the prison. You can read about a similar scene in Acts 22 if you, if you want to go do that. So citizenship in the Roman Empire was really significant. It really meant that you belonged to something. But it also came with... Um, great expectations for the individual citizens with respect to loyalty to the empire. Much was expected in terms of allegiance and devotion. But Paul is saying here that you are citizens of a greater empire, a greater kingdom, that of God himself. You are citizens with God's people. You know, he says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await our savior from there Jesus Christ. So one of the primary takeaways of this metaphor of citizenship has to do with our allegiances. When we come to faith in Jesus, our citizenship, it shifts to a new kingdom. And along with that, our allegiances shift to God above else. You're no longer a visitor to the kingdom, someone just passing through, but now you are a resident, a citizen in God's kingdom. So it's time for you to get to know your neighbors in the kingdom building relationships and contributing to the health and building of the kingdom as any loyal citizen would. The third metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 is that of a household or a family. This is still in verse 19. And again, it's almost a passing reference. He says, you are no longer strangers, but members of his household. Members of his household. You know, if you, if you came to my house and knocked on my door and I don't know you, you're a stranger. You're not coming into my household. But if I know you and we're family, you're part of my household. You're coming in. You're no longer a stranger. You know, and Paul and the other New Testament writers, they love to speak of the church as a family. Paul is always calling other Christians, brother this and sister that. And then, you know, in 6.10, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In 1 Thessalonians 4.10, he says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, the whole region. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, they're of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You know, I love this metaphor Really, it's, this one's more than a metaphor. It really is a, a reality. It's even stronger than citizenship. You know, in a family, you're accepted for all your qualities, for all your faults. You know, we've all had family members who isolate themselves or maybe they're difficult to get along with, but we still love them. And we would say they're still family, they're blood, they're family, and you do for family. You know, there's a loyalty and a commitment to each other that goes deeper and stronger than other relationships. And in the church, because of Jesus, we, we are all an adopted family together. In Romans 8, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption. We aren't merely servants in the household who have to live in fear of 
losing our job or our status or being treated roughly by the master, but instead we're adopted into the family with all the rights and privileges and access to the father he so graciously gives. And the big idea here is that we have this belonging that we didn't have before, a belonging unmatched by anything else. And along with that belonging is a relational loyalty that we have to all the other adopted sons and daughters in the family of God. You know, we, we can't live as black sheep independent of the rest of the family. We show up to the family reunions on Sunday mornings, even if it has to be online for now. We spend time with our brothers and sisters in our groups, even if it's on a streaming platform for now. We serve in various ways to strengthen the family. We work together as a family to grow the family, calling others into adoption. And in our family, we don't only think of our own needs, our own schedules, our own desires, but we put the needs and desires of others ahead of our own, even in a sacrificial way. You're part of a family, so don't act like a black sheep. You know, and this is a, a really unique time in the history of the church where we get to practice that even more. It's, it's, it's amazing how so many people in the church today, they seem to be even more willing to serve now than maybe a couple months ago. People wanting to help fulfill needs. And, you know, we have a ministry initiative here at College Park we're calling the College Park Care Team. And this is our staff and our elders and a number of other people who just feel the urgency of this type of ministry who are ready, who are ready and willing uh, to, to get out and, and help people. You know, if, do you need groceries? Do you need uh, somebody to pick up medicine, to run you to an appointment, to even just take your garbage out, you know, because you're trying to just, you know, stay careful. Um, reach out to us. We have a whole team of people who are eager and willing to fulfill those needs. So reach out to the church through our Facebook page or call the office, email one of the staff or pastors. You can find all that contact information on the website. But now's the time to really step up our life together as a family. And the fourth metaphor that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 is that of a temple, a temple. This is in verses 20 through 22. He says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You know, Peter also uses this metaphor in his letters. And I'm not going to spend any time on the details of how a building is built and what a cornerstone is and all that. But the big idea here is that the bricks come together to be the dwelling for God. No one brick can contain the glory and the fullness and the presence of God. But it takes all of us being built together into the temple, the dwelling of God. The church is the place, the temple in which God dwells. The church is the temple God uses to call attention to his glory and praise and worship. The church is the temple from which news of his grace and mercy and presence is made known and advanced into the world. You know, all of these metaphors, these images of the church, the kingdom of God, they communicate a reality that is in direct contrast and opposition to our human tendencies to separate and divide and fly solo, to fend for ourselves and pretend we don't need others for any, anything. And so in Ephesians, Paul is stressing that life is relational. 
In Christ, separation is broken down and relationships with God and his people are established. And this isn't merely some thing that happened in the past, but keeps happening. This is present life with God and in the church. It's ongoing. It continues in the life and the ministry of the church today. We endeavor to make the body of Christ healthy and whole. We labor to be good contributing citizens. We love our family and we do life together. We glorify God in his temple, the church, in our worship, prayer, devotion, service, and obedience to his commands. The calling and purpose of the church is to be united in community. And there are a number of ways we pursue that practically. One way is to serve. One way is to serve, find a place to serve. God has given everyone in the church the capacity to contribute to the ministry of the church. We're assured that by scripture, that everyone has at least one spiritual gift, maybe more, that he or she can bring into the life and ministry of the church. But you know, you can even think of it more simply than that. Just ask yourself, what strengths do I have that strengthen, that can strengthen my church. Don't be one of those people who are just a spectator or a consumer. Don't think that the giving of your tithe, your offerings alone, though extremely important, is all that God is calling you to do or all that's needed. You know, no church can afford to pay people for every aspect of ministry and service. I mean, can you imagine if we had to start paying people to be ushers or greeters or Sunday school teachers, choir members, or any of the other dozens of ways to serve. You know, if you, if you follow Jesus and you have breath, then the body of Christ has a place for you to serve according to your spiritual gifts, passions, abilities, personality, and experiences. So if you need help figuring that out, let's have a talk. Our staff or elders would love to help you figure that out. Another way to serve, another way to, to grow in community, another way is to join a group of some kind. Groups are so good for so many reasons. So many aspects of the church life, ministry and mission, can be lived out in the context of a smaller group. You can grow in your faith. You can connect with others in friendship. You can serve together in your group at different capacities. You can even take time as a group to reach out to others and be a smaller missional community in your neighborhoods. And we have all kinds of groups that meet at all kinds of different times throughout the week, whether they be on Sunday mornings or other days. Right now, most of those groups are meeting digitally. We can, we can get you connected in that regard. Again, just reach out. Talk to a staff member or elder. Talk to your friends in the church and see what groups they're in and go check them out. They love to see new people join. Check out our website for all those opportunities. Another way is to invite others into your life. You know, this might be harder to do right now, but soon things are going to return to normal. And when they do, all of this social distancing and shelter-in-place orders, you know, after all of this, people are going to be dry from isolation and a lack of connection. So invite others into your life, into your home for a meal or game night or to watch a movie or a sporting event. Invite others into your hobbies and interests. Do you, do you like to, to, to ride motorcycles? Then get some other guys together and start riding motorcycles together. Board games or, or you know, if you're into gardening or planting or knife throwing or, you know, whatever, whatever you're into. Invite others into those hobbies and interests and, and invite others to church you know, or our church events and activities. Share this post today after we wrap up the broadcast and invite others to view, to join in the viewership, you know, next week. And lastly, but really 
first is to simplify your life. That's pretty easy for us right now. But when things get back to normal, you know, we, we have to be intentional and relational and even organic. This is one of the hardest things for people to do because one of the main reasons we're not connected in a group, we're not serving or even attending church regularly and, and especially invested in individual relationship is because our lives are too complex. You actually have to create space in your life to live out the great commandment and the great commission. The calling and purpose of the church is to be united in community because life is relational. That's the way God designed it. You know, in closing today, I, I want to share about a story I read recently about something tragic that happened years ago in New York City. There was a man who was found dead in his apartment, which unfortunately isn't entirely out of the ordinary. But this particular case was different because the body of this poor man was decaying and even by this point somewhat mummified. And when the police started investigating, they discovered from the neighbors that this man was a loner and no one really had the kind of relationship with him to even think about checking up on him. And, you know, the police, they, they were notified about a pipe burst on the side of the man's building, which is what led them to knock on doors and uh, knock on his door eventually. And when they entered, they found the man, this poor man, dead in his recliner in front of the TV, which was still on. And the medical examiner determined that he had been dead for almost a year. A year. I mean, what a tragic indictment of our culture and our tendency towards rugged and aggressive individualism, lack of connection, absence of commitment to things greater than ourselves. This man was found dead in front of what is probably the greatest symbol of isolation in our culture, the TV screen. You know, no one had the kind of relationship to, to just even think to check up on him. You know, this is not the way God intended it to be. In John 17, Jesus prayed for us saying, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, the unity and community and abundant life kingdom that is the church is powerful and bears witness to the presence and the love of God. So let's learn to live in that together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence among us, even now, as we sit at home, as we gather in smaller settings. God, we thank you that even in distance, we can be united. We are united as your children, as your citizens, as members of one body. In this glorious temple you are building, which is the dwelling of your spirit, which is the dwelling of your presence. Lord, may the church rise up and be so. Lord, may we be the witnesses to the gospel and the hope and the faith that our, that our world needs, especially right now, that we can be people of hope. We can be people of faith. We can be people who look to our good God and your sovereignty in this time. And Lord, help us to love one another well. Help us to be united together and to love our neighbors. God, we, uh, we ask that you would work in your people to, to build your kingdom 
Lord, to make known the name of Jesus Christ, especially in this time when people are, are fearful and when they're searching for answers and when, when they're worried about what's next. So God, we praise you today. We continue to worship you even now. In Jesus' name, amen.